Good morning. Uh, let's go ahead and begin class with prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that you will be with us uh, today as we study. We ask that you will uh, be with us as we have a seminar next week, that we can always present the truth about you in the best way possible. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Uh, we are doing lesson number seven in the quarterly, um, the sanctuary, and the title is Christ or Sacrifice. But before we get into this week's lesson, last week at the beginning of class, somebody uh, you know, on the online class, emailed in a question about a quotation from the Great Controversy, which I tried to give a brief answer to, but usually when you give a brief answer, it only causes more questions, and all week long I've been getting emails, and so I've got to follow up and bring some, maybe hopefully some closure to the question. And the idea was, I'd mentioned that uh, the blood of the animal sacrifice in Bible never contaminated anything, it always cleansed and made holy anything it came in contact with. And so this quotation was read out of a book called Great Controversy, page 418. It says, day by day, the repentant sinner brought his offerings to the door of the tabernacle and placing his hands upon the victim's head, confessed his sins, thus in figure, transferring them from himself to the, notice what it's transferring to, to the innocent sacrifice. So you should conclude, what does that represent? Uh, The animal was then slain, the blood representing the forfeited life of the sinner. whose guilt the victim bore was carried by the priest into the holy place, sprinkled before the veil, behind the ark containing the law that the sinner had transgressed. By this ceremony, the sin was, was through the blood, tra- uh, transferred in figure to the sanctuary. Does anybody notice that the victim was the innocent victim representing who? Christ, the innocent victim. But the blood represents not the blood of Christ or the blood of the innocent victim, or the blood of the lamb, which the blood somehow of this animal that represents Christ somehow now becomes the blood of the sinner. Does anybody even question that? I can tell you from Scripture, you'll never find a Bible quote where that's true. And you'll never find a Bible quote where the blood of the sacrificial animal contaminated anything. But people question, how could we come to a different conclusion than what was just stated here? How could we question it? Well, that's because truth is unfolding. One of the problems with many religious people and organizations is that when they come to an idea with truth in it, they lock down and stop growing. 2,000 years ago, the Jews had much truth. They knew the time, that the, uh, the time was right for the Messiah to come. They knew that the Messiah was going to be born in Bethlehem. They knew many truths, but they also had many misunderstandings mixed in with their truths. And their system their belief system was so locked in that they couldn't reinterpret. And Christ tried to reinterpret. Every time he tried to help them see, no, it doesn't mean this, it really means this, they wanted to stone him. They were resistant to re-understanding. Likewise, many religious people have beliefs that are filled with truths, but also have some misunderstanding. And when we come to a belief, they become afraid of changing the belief. Fortunately, the person who wrote Great Controversy, Ellen White, didn't have this problem. Now, she was able to actually grow in her beliefs and understandings and change her insights with new perspectives as came. Let me give you an example of how she did this. This was written in 1864 in a book called Appeal to the Youth. Remember, this is going to change, so don't get too upset when I read this. This is written in 1864. The Lord loves the little children who, do, who try to do right. He has promised that they shall be in his kingdom, but wicked children God does not love. 
He will not take them to the beautiful city, for he only admits the good, obedient, and patient children there. 1864. Now, this is out of Bible Echo, 1892, 28 years later. Jesus would have the fathers and mothers teach their children this beauty of character. He would have them teach their children that God loves them, that their natures may be changed and brought into harmony with God. Do not teach your children that God does not love them when they do wrong. Teach them that he loves them so that it grieves his spirit to see them in transgression because he knows they are doing injury to their souls. Do not terrify your children by telling them of the wrath of God, but rather seek to impress them with his unspeakable love and goodness, and thus let the glory of the Lord be revealed before them. Is that first book taken out of publication now, I hope? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> okay. Well, but she was growing in her understanding. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, but this is the point. What should a spiritual... 1864, you're a member of the church. Ellen White is a member of your church, and she writes this council. You read it. What should a spiritual, God-filled church member have done with the quote in 1864? Thought for themselves. Should they, should they have just said, well, Ellen White said it. It must be that way. I mean, it doesn't matter that I think that God still loves children. It doesn't matter that what I see in Jesus and how Jesus did not condemn the people who condemned him and forgave them, and he still loved his enemies. And he says, you were to, we're to turn the other cheek and love our enemies. It doesn't matter what Jesus... If Ellen White said it, it must be true. We should just shut off our brains and accept it because Ellen White said it, right? No, of course not. No. Or should the person have said, you know what, I don't believe that. How about this? If that's too uncomfortable for you because it's too close to home, let's back up and make it comfortable. 2,000 years ago, Peter practiced in a church environment not associating with Gentiles. He was leading out as the church leader, as the apostle from Jesus. Don't associate with Gentiles. Why didn't some of the local church members stand up with their God-filled minds and understanding of Scripture and the character of God and say, Peter, you're wrong about this, buddy. He's an apostle. Was it possible that they surrendered their thinking? Well, he's got authority. He represents church authority. We can't question church authority. Someone in leadership must know better than us. But Paul wrote in, in Romans 14.5, every person must be fully persuaded in their own mind. And so Paul had to come and confront Peter because evidently there wasn't one member of the church who could stand up and tell Peter he was wrong. But he was wrong, wasn't he? Now, was Peter wrong? Did that make him less of an apostle? No. Did it make him less inspired when he wrote? No. See, inspiration inspires the person who is still a sinner. Yes or no? Yes. Meaning they're still fallible. They can make mistakes. They can still need correction. One of the misunderstandings, and this comes from our own fear. We, we don't want to make a mistake. We want to get it right. We don't want to do wrong. We don't want to let God down. Uh, so we don't want to take any responsibility for thinking ourselves. We just want somebody else to tell us what to do, who will be on their shoulders. If Sister White said it and I follow it, it's not my fault. I followed it. She had, the, she had the gift. I didn't have the gift. It's not my fault. I have no responsibility here. Just because I went down the wrong path, she told me to. We have no personal responsibility. We shut off our thinking. We give it to church leadership, to, the, to, the, to, the, to some interpretation that somebody's given us. And this is why we have a bunch of spiritual cripples in the church. So let me give you some other quotes now from Ellen White, who wrote that quote in Great Controversy. Because the, the real issue is, can we look at this idea of what's happening in the blood and disagree with her conclusion that she had at that time 
and still value her insights and believe that she had wisdom from God? Well, here's what she said about it, about how her writings should be used. I recommend to you, dear reader, the word of God. I'm going to go through progression. This is 1851. I recommend to you, dear reader, the word of God as your rule and your faith of practice. 1851. This is, let's see, 1888. This is the introduction to the book, The Great Controversy, where that quote came from. The spirit was not given, nor can it ever be bestowed to supersede the Bible. For the scriptures explicitly state that the word of God is the standard by which all teaching and experience must be tested. Or this was 1890. The testimonies of Sister White should not be carried to the front. God's word is the unerring standard. The testimonies are not to take the place of the word, that all prove their positions from the scripture and substantiate every point they claim as truth from the revealed word of God. Or 1894. This is uh, Evangelism 256. Um, Our position in faith is in the Bible, and never do we want any soul to bring the testimonies ahead of the Bible. Three selected messages, 29, uh, 1901. The Lord desires you to study your Bibles. He has not given any additional light to take the place of his word. This light is to bring confused minds to his word. And then, final quote, and I don't have the date, but this is out of Christian Experience and Teaching, page 203. We have many lessons to learn and many, many to unlearn. God and heaven alone are infallible. Those who think they will never have to give up a cherished view, never have occasion to change an opinion, will be disappointed. As long as we hold to our own ideas and opinions with determined persistency, we cannot have the unity for which Christ prayed. So my position, basically, the point I was saying last week is that if we don't find it in Scripture, a certain point, then we must take the Scripture and interpret all other writings through the Scripture. That's the point I was making. Some people are uncomfortable with that because the Scripture can't support that point. One other point about this idea of the blood contaminating. Think this through with me now. The old type system is symbolic of something. And and in one place, it's interpreted as the blood, the sin gets transferred to the lamb. The blood's lamb represents the, 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 the contaminated blood of the sinner, which goes into the sanctuary, and now the sanctuary is contaminated. Let's take it to a little more literal application, away from symbols, at least some of the symbols. Jesus said, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you have no part with me. So are we to take this application and say, so when we partake of Jesus' blood, we're actually transferring sin into ourselves and becoming contaminated. If we're going to have it here, then we need to have it there. You see, there's a breakdown here. Does anybody really believe when we partake of the blood of Christ, metaphorically, partake of Christ, we become contaminated? No. You can't have... Now, some, some of you I know out there listening are uncomfortable. Think it through for yourselves. Look at the evidence. It's checked the scripture. I've had several people try to email me texts that they thought would, would show that the, the blood contaminates. So there's one text, I think it's in Jeremiah, that says, if the blood of the animal touches the hem of the garment, the garment becomes holy. If the garment touches something else, it becomes defiled. Not the garment, the thing it touches. And they say, see, it defiles. If the blood touches something else, it defiles. No, no, no. It's, think of the metaphor. Think of the metaphor. We can partake of Christ, the blood, into us. And we can become holy through partaking in Christ. But once we partake of Christ, we can't go and be the source of having someone else be holy. They have to partake of Christ directly. That's all that means. Okay? It, the blood doesn't contaminate. 
the, the object that had been made holy can't make something else holy. Does that make sense? Yeah. Sabbath lesson. It says the memory verse. He him, this is out of 1 Peter 2.24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you are healed. This particular verse is frequently used and in this lesson as well by people who hold to penal substitution concepts of God that Christ had to substitutionarily be punished in our place and sins had to be punished in his, upon him. And perhaps those who hold that view are at a disadvantage because of the translation and the way it's translated. I want you to look. You can pull your Bible out or you can look in the lesson itself and you can see where it's quoted correctly there in the, in the uh, New American Standard Bible. That's how it's written. And I want you to notice the words here. Do you notice how in the first phrase it says, the translation says that he bore our sins, plural. But that in the second phrase, it says in his body um, that we might die to sin, singular. You see that? Sins for, in the first one, sin, singular. Do you understand the Greek is the exact same? The Greek is the exact same in both places. So the translator has to translate, well, are we talking sins, plural, or sin, singular? Because the Greek doesn't make a difference. Let me ask you a question in English. Is there a connotation difference to you when you hear sins being transferred than when you hear sin being transferred? It sends a completely different message. And so what would be suggested if we read it this way? He himself bore our sin in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. The only word I changed was that one word from plural to singular, which is the exact Greek in the same sentence later on. Does it sound different to you now? He bore our sin versus he bore our sins. See, there, the, the penal view, when they, the interpreters went, all these translations of Scripture have been done post Constantine. Come next week to our November 9 meeting and I will give you the history of what happened when Constantine converted and give you some quotes of how the church changed its view. And these translators are going with honest hearts, but they have a lens on of, of imposed law. God's law operates like this. And so when they translate, they translate with the, the best intentions, but they, they put this, this plurality on here when, when it's not actually in there. We hold the design model, the healing model. We recognize Christ took our condition, our sin, upon himself and cured it. Thus he took our iniquity, our fallen state, our sinfulness, or our sin, which is more consistent with the very text itself. If you notice the text itself, notice what it says in the text. There's nothing in this text that says anything about payments or legal requirements. It's not in there. What it does say, though, it says that by doing this, we are healed. We are healed, is what it says. That we might do or live righteously, not that we might be declared righteous. So the text itself clarifies for us what's happening here. It's a transformational, healing, restorative, so we can live righteous. Not so we can be legally declared righteous. First two paragraphs, listen to this. Catholic priest Maximilian Kolbe was imprisoned at Auschwitz uh, for um, providing shelter 
to refugees from greater Poland, including the 2,000 Jews. When a prisoner in his barracks vanished, perhaps he escaped, the SS picked 10 prisoners to be starved to death in reprisal. One of the selected men cried out, Oh, my poor wife, my poor children, I shall never see them again. At that point, Colby offered himself in the man's place. That is, he asked that he be the one to starve, not the distraught family man. The surprised SS officer agreed, and Colby joined the ranks of the doomed while the other man survived. However moving, Colby's sacrifice is only a shadow of the one who willingly took our place and act symbolized in the sanctuary service. The New Testament identifies Jesus with two major aspects of the Old Testament sacrificial system. He is our sacrifice. He is also our high priest. Questions. What makes Christ's sacrificial death more significant than Colby's? It was healing. It was healing. I agree with that. It was God himself. God was, was, in, was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Any other thoughts? Any other thoughts? What else made this different, more significant? Christ had the remedy. Colby didn't. Ah, Christ wasn't just dying a death that is a sleep death, in the sense. Christ was actually destroying the, the, the destructive element in humanity that, that brings death. He was over him. He was purifying. He was cleansing. He was renewing. He was rebuilding. He, was, he took up mankind, broken off an atom, and carried it to completion, to perfection. Not only that, Christ, in my view, went through this without the comfort of the Holy Spirit at, at, through the Gethsemane weekend. He experienced emotional abandonment. Whereas the martyrs throughout history, Stephen's face is glowing like an angel. The martyrs, you read the book of martyrs, were singing hymns. They had the spirit giving them comfort. Christ did not have that nurture. He, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, he wasn't actually forsaken, but his experience was that emotional abandonment. Further, Christ had the ability to stop it. Christ had the ability to stop death from taking him. Not only stop death from taking him, to come off the cross. Not only come off the cross to kill the people who are killing him. Colby couldn't do anything. He was helpless. He was powerless. Christ wasn't. What's the significance to you of seeing Christ knowing he has all power? John 13 tells us all power is given to him. He's got all power at his disposal. And he doesn't even have a thought to hurt the people who are killing him. That's way more significant than Colby, isn't it? Profound. That's all handsome work. Yes. But do you think in all of this that he finished the cause for sinning? Finished? What do you mean? He basically, by dying on the cross, has covered the fact that there will be no more sin when he comes. I don't know that that has any significance. Or not. I'm not sure I'm understanding what you're trying to say. His sacrifice yeah. to me has finished, will be finished being the cause for sinning. I'm just, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just not ha- finding, I'm, uh, is that, can anybody help me out here? Does anybody know what, what's being said? I'm, I'm confused. I'm sorry, I'm just not tracking. Yeah. Maybe it destroyed completely the lies that Satan was telling. Okay. Okay, so, so his sacrifice took care of of everything, you see, all the basis upon which Satan alleged the reasons for sin were destroyed. Mm-hmm. So, okay, yeah, sure, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he took care of all that, yeah. 
I'm sorry I didn't understand. Um, Sunday's lesson, first paragraph, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12 is a powerful description of Christ's death for the sins of the world. Several aspects of this passage provide clear evidence that Jesus' death is atonement in the form of penal substitution, which means that he took the penalty that others deserved and in fact died as a substitute for them. And then it goes on to give some examples why. The lesson suggests... And the passage provides clear evidence that Jesus' death is atonement in the form of penal substitution. He gets five claims to, to uh, or claims five points to prove this. And those five points are, he su- number one, he suffered for others. Two, he, his suffering brought benefit to others. Three, it was God's will for Christ to do this, and our iniquity was placed upon Christ. Four, Christ is righteous. And five, he is an atoning sacrifice. Based on these five points, they conclude that, that this text proves this penal substitution is correct. Well, you know what? The five points are right. Those five points are absolutely right. Yet nowhere can you find in here penal substitution. It's not there. It's not in the text. It's not in those five points. It's all contrived. Penal substitution is a man-made theory based on believing imperial Rome's idea of law. Let's see if we can look at it this way. Consider an analogy of someone in renal failure, in needing of a kidney transplant. The one who saves the dying patient by donating a kidney suffers for another. His suffering brings benefit to another. It is the will of the loving father to provide the healing kidney, the healthy kidney, to save the dying person. And the sickness and pain due to the dying person will be taken upon the the person donating the kidney, i.e. the healthy person loses a kidney and the sick person gets a healthy kidney but loses a dead kidney. They exchange places, so to speak. Um, Jesus is righteous, i.e. the person donating the kidney has a perfectly healthy kidney. And Jesus, the atoning or reuniting sacrifice, the sacrifice of donating the kidney brings healing, reconciliation, oneness. Thus, the one donating the kidney by healing the dying patient, reunites them to the living, bringing them back into harmony with the way life is to operate. You notice all those points are true, and not once do we need a legal payment made. And even if we got a legal payment, it wouldn't help the guy that needed a kidney. Exactly. A legal payment doesn't help the guy dying with a kidney. Legal payment does not help a sinner in his sin. But Jesus Christ does. Let's look at Isaiah 53, starting in verse 2. Let's go through these verse by verse. It says, he grew, up, he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Starting in verse 4. <clears throat> Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. Do you notice that he took up infirmities? In other words, he took up sickness. He took up sinfulness. Yet we would misunderstand and think it was God that was striking him down and killing him. That's what the Bible says. Next verse. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Notice he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are pardoned. Oh, wait, I misread that, did I? By his wounds we are healed. Did you notice that? Um, it, It wasn't God doing this to him. 
It was our transgressions, our evil that crushed him, our sinful condition caused him grief, both within and without. And the purpose he suffered was not to pay legal penalty, but so that through his ordeal, he could heal broken humanity and bring us back into oneness with God. Verse 6. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Yes, the sinfulness, the sin, not the sins, the iniquity with which we were all infected was laid upon Christ. He took our sinfulness and overcame, cured, and eradicated it. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had, no, had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And through the, and through the Lord make his life a guilt offering. Uh, we see him, uh, he will see his offspring and prolong his days And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. It was the Lord's will to provide the remedy. It would be like saying, it was the Father's will to donate the kidney. It was the Lord's will to provide the remedy, which would cure mankind. Christ's mission to be the second Adam, to take mankind broken off, dying, terminal, from what Adam did to it, to pick man up in that condition and carry man on to completion and cure the condition. It was God's will. And the only method, the way that could happen, was through the path that Christ took, his sacrifice. After the suffering of his soul, we see the lights of life. Uh, He will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Justify means what? Justify. Thank you. Set right. When you justify your margins on your document, you take what's out of harmony, you put it right. You just put it in line to set right. So what's wrong? After Adam's sin, what's wrong that needs to be set right? Humankind is wrong. We're, we're defective. We're deformed. We're selfish. We're fear-ridden. We, we deviate from the law of love. We don't operate in harmony with his design. We are out of line. And so what needs to be set right? Well, God needs to be set right because he's angry and wrathful. That's what they think it means. No. Mankind needs to be fixed, restored, regenerated, healed, put back right in harmony with God's design. And then I want to share with you in the next few minutes a portion of a sermon given by George Fifield, an SDA pastor to the General Conference in 1897. I'm going to try to deliver it as if you were in the audience. I'm not sure that I can, because I don't know if he had a hot New Yorker accent or not, but I won't try it with that. Um, we'll just do it. And this is, uh, this is uh, George Fifield. You will find the basis of our study this evening in the 53rd chapter of Isaiah. And the third verse. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. In connection with this, I will read several other verses of the same chapter and also a translation which will enable us to obtain the thought more clearly. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. The other translation reads, 
Surely he bore our griefs. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. He was pierced through by our sins. He was crushed by our misdeeds. The chastisement of our peace lay upon him, and in his wounds there became healing for us. Another translation, the Lord let all our misdeeds come upon him, or another translation, it pleased the Lord to let him be crushed. He hath made him sick with his soul, hath given a trespass offering. And the third verse states vividly, contrast the third verse as it states vividly, contrast the true and the false ideas of Christ's mission, of his work and of the atonement. One is what was, the other is what we thought was. One is truth, the other falsehood. One is Christianity, the other paganism. We would do well to study every thought in that text. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet he was pierced through by our misdeeds and carried our sorrows. He was pierced through by our misdeeds. And God permitted it because in his stripes there was healing for us. But we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Whose griefs? Whose sorrows? Ours. The grief and sorrow that crushed the heart of Christ and took, uh, and took him from among the living so that he died of a broken heart was no strange new grief and sorrow. It was not something unlike what we have to bear. It was not God arbitrarily putting upon him our sins and thus punishing the sins to deliver us. He took no position arbitrarily that we do not have to suffer. It was our griefs and our sorrows that pierced him through. He took our sinful natures and our sinful flesh at the point of weakness to which we had brought it, submitting himself to all the conditions of the race and placing himself where we are to fight the conflict that we have to fight, the fight of faith. And he did this by the same power which we have access By the Spirit of God, he cast out devils. Through the eternal Spirit, he offered himself without spot, and the Spirit of God rested upon him and made him of quick understanding in the things of God. It is our sins that he took, our temptations. He took our sorrows, our griefs, all the conflict of our lives upon him and was tempted in all points like we are. He took the injustices of our lives upon him. It is a fact that you and I have to suffer many things for which we are not at fault. All my suffering is not the result of my sin. Some of it is, but just as long as sin exists, injustice exists. As long as, a man, as, long as men sin, men will be sinned against. So you and I will have to suffer the sins of others. So God, too, so God, to show that he knew and realized all that, let him that was perfectly innocent take the injustice and sin of us all. Oh, brethren and sisters. See how old that is? Oh, brethren and sisters. He did not bear some other grief or some other sorrow. He bore our grief and our sorrows. He was pierced through by them and the Lord permitted it because there was healing in it for us. Not that he might appease God or reconcile us to him. Every passage of scripture that refers to the reconciliation or atonement or the propitiation, always represents God as the one who makes this atonement, reconciliation or propitiation. In Christ, we are always the ones atoned for, the ones to be reconciled. For us, it was done in order that, as Peter says, he might bring us to God. 
The only way to do this, and get this, the only way to do this is by destroying sin in us. This is Fifield, 1897. He took our sins upon him in order that he might bring us to God. It was that he might break down the middle wall of partition between human hearts and God, between Jews and Gentiles, between God and man, that he might make us one with him and one with one another, thus making at one or the atonement. In Christ Jesus, we who are sometimes afar off are made near by the blood of Christ, so that we are no longer strangers or foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the chief cornerstone. This is as near to the Lord as we can get. This is at one This is why he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, that we might do, that, that he might do that for us by breaking down all those things which separate hearts from hearts. This is the last paragraph, almost done. Both human and divine, notwithstanding this, we did esteem him, stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. That was what we thought of it. We said, God is doing all this. God is killing him. God is punishing him to satisfy his wrath in order to let us off. That is the pagan conception of sacrifice. The Christian idea has sacrifice. The Christian idea of sacrifice is this, and let us notice the contrast. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes should not perish. That is the Christian idea. Yes, sir, indifference keeps. Hatred keeps. Selfishness keeps. Or gives if at all, but begrudgingly, counting the cost and figuring on some larger return at some future time. But love, and love only, sacrifices, gives freely, gives itself, gives without counting the cost, gives because it is love. That is sacrifice, whether it is the sacrifice of, of bulls or goats, or of him who is the Lamb of God. It is the sacrifice that is revealed throughout the entire scripture. But the pagan idea of sacrifice is just the opposite. It is that some God is always offended, always angry, and his wrath must be propitiated in some way. Amen. 1897. General Conference. Have we learned anything in the last hundred and some years? Are we still fighting the same battles over God in our church? Is it in their response? No. I don't know how it was received. I can tell you in 1888, the message came forward that we need to move away from these legal constructs toward the the righteousness by faith, that we have faith and he heals us. He makes us righteous. He transforms us. It's a healing message that came. Ellen White endorsed it and they shipped her to Australia. Get away from here, man. As far as you can get on planet Earth from North America is Australia. And while she was there, she wrote Steps to Christ, Christ's Object Lessons, Desire of Ages, and Thoughts on the Mount of Blessing. Every one of those books teach healing message of God. The same thing that Fifield was preaching. We have a problem in our church. Not just our church. Christianity at large has a problem. This is why I believe the Lord hasn't come. Because we haven't taken the gospel of the kingdom of love to the world. We've taken a, in, 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 a, a false, distorted, imperial Roman dictator God to the world. We have a lingering question from the beginning discussion. Yes. And it has to do with the, the blood and the transferring of it. Um, could it be that the blood carries information similar to Abel's blood carrying the information of Cain's murder? How would that be problematic? Yeah, I, I, yeah how, how does blood carry information other than, I mean, if you're talking about DNA, you've got DNA information. Um, I'm not sure how the blood is carrying information. The blood is symbolic. It's a symbol. It's not literal. The life is in the blood. The physical life is in the blood. It's literal that way. But when Jesus said, unless we eat, 
my flesh and drink my blood. It's symbolic. The whole sanctuary service, Old Testament, everything in there is symbolic of a larger reality. It is not literal. And Jesus Christ is the key to unlock that reality. Exactly. Jesus Christ and the gospel are the keys that we need to understand to unlock what that reality is. But what happens is people go to the Old Testament with their preconceived penal ideas. They, they, they read into it these punita- punitive things, and then they take Christ and try to plug him into that mold. It doesn't work. Wasn't the, the expression, the sanctuary shall be cleansed? Yes. Well, didn't they cleanse the sanctuary once a year? I mean, I'm just confused here because... Uh, the blood actually cleanses. Yeah, thank you for bringing this up. She's asking about the, the, the uh, once a year, the Day of Atonement, the cleansing of the sanctuary. What's it being cleansed of? And the sanctuary system is, so far as I understand it, remember, we're all learning. This is not the final word. I'm still growing. I expect to have more insight as time unfolds, so don't lock me in to say I can't change my view on this. Okay? But as I understand it thus far, is that the, the sanctuary had two general themes to it. One was the daily theme. The daily theme where they brought their sin offerings on a daily basis, and that represented the individual's conversion experience, growth, sanctification, drawing near to God. All 11 tribes other than the Levites represented the unconverted peoples of the world, and when they would come with their sacrificial animal, animal, the blood of that would be taken to the brazen altar and done with there. Symbolic of the, the unconverted brazen heart being converted by the blood of Christ coming in and transformation taking place. The priests and the Levites, the priests, which in their robes of white represented the converted, the priesthood of believers, those who have already been converted, but are now growing in grace, when they would stumble and fall and make a sin, the blood would be taken into the golden altar, not to the brazen altar, and applied to the horns there, the horns representing our, our defects of character, being cleansed as the blood is applied to them, transforming and healing us. And the golden altar, the horns are much smaller because we're already growing with Christ. We have The defects are being managed and, and reduced with time and so forth. You see this process. I won't go through all the details, but the daily is the individual sinner and and the daily priests get to go in the holy place, which represents the church, closer to the Shekinah. They're drawing closer to God than the unconverted who just came at the brazen altar. They're further away from God. So you see this progression coming in closer to God as you participate in the system. That's what the daily is represented, the individual growing and walking in their journey to the Lord and coming back into it one minute. Then you have the annual feasts that happen once a year. The annual feasts, as I understand it, were designed to represent the cosmic conflict on a, glo- on a cosmic scale, progressing from the inception of sin to the conclusion of sin, not the individual believer. Thus, the first feast of the year is what? And as soon as Adam sinned, Romans chapter 3, God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He passed over. The second feast is the unleavened bread. God began immediately providing truth, unleavened with, with, with sin, to feed us and nurture us. And from that came the feast of weeks, which is the feast of harvest. A harvest of souls is being brought up through God's work. And then after that came the feast of trumpets, which is announcing, prepare, it's time, it's coming to the end. And after that comes the day of atonement, the day of cleansing. What is being cleansed? What is being cleansed? Well, and then, and then I'll come back to what's being cleansed after I take you to the last feast. And after the cleansing, after atonement, after we're brought into unity with God, then we have the Feast of Tabernacles, which they had their boughs and green they went in, which is symbolic of we return to our Eden home where all things are made new. We tabernacle and live forever with God in an earth recreated. It's a progression over the landscape as a, as a whole to teach the bigger picture, not the individual cleansing. And what's happened is, in my view, is that they've mixed the two. They've taken the individual daily sins and they've then tried to apply this annual feast as part of the individual. It's not. An individual could experience atonement before the end. 
of human history. Any, any examples of somebody who experienced atonement for the end of history? Come on. Enoch, Elijah, Moses, they all have been reconciled fully and are at one with God again. Are anybody going to, anyone to take a position that they're not? Okay. They're completely cleansed and healed. Their individual sin was removed from the sanctuary before 1844. They were cleansed, healed, restored fully. Yes or no? Okay. So we mix the two, I think, in error and come up with a doctrine that doesn't quite fit. Doesn't mean 1844 is wrong. Doesn't mean investigative judgment runs not. But what are we investigating? We have to go back and look in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 9, uh, first, uh, and, and uh, second Thessalonians. It tells us a little horn power is going to come up and he's going to seek to change things around, right? And then Paul says, after Christ, after Christ's resurrection, Paul says in Thessalonians, I don't want you to be um, confused that the day will not come before the man of sin arises, that man of perdition who sets himself up against God, uh, opposes everything that is godly and sets himself up in, in where? Temple. In God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, which temple is this man of sin setting himself up in? Did he go up into the, in heaven somewhere, knock Jesus or the Father off their heavenly throne, sit in that place up there? Is that what he did? No, this is the spirit temple. And what happened is what Daniel's prophesying about a little horn power coming up to war against the saints. He's going to war against the saints until judgment is given to the saints, it says. is the same power of the man of sin that is going to counterattack what Christ has done for us and try to set himself up in God's temple, the spirit temple in our minds. So when the little horn power wars against the saints, what kind of war? 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. For though we live in the world, we don't wage wars the world does. The weapons we fight with are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish every argument and pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought. It's a war for argument, pretension, knowledge, and thought. It's a war in the mind over the knowledge of God. So the little horn power rises up, man of perdition, sets itself up against God, setting itself in the temple with lies about God, a false theology, a false doctrine. We believe God is a dictator like Rome. We believe God must be appeased. We believe God must be punished. Well, God looked down through the corridors of time through his prophet and said, it's going to be 2,300 years until enough truth is recovered that my sanctuary, my spirit temple can be cleansed of these lies about me. And so we have the, the first angel's message. Fear God. Be in awe. Be amazed. And give glory. Let your life reveal him for the hour of his judgment. The hour on the penal model where he sits in judgment and goes over a bunch of records and makes a decision because he really doesn't know it yet. He has to look first. Please. No, the hour in which he is being judged. Romans chapter 3, verse 4. God, may you win your case when you take it into court. God has been accused. He's been, we've been lied to about. He is, we have believed lies about him. And God has provided evidence in 2,300 years until the truth is recovered that we can reject the lies about God, have our minds cleansed. And so there's a cleansing to do, for sure. But it's a corporate cleansing of the hearts and minds of the people on planet Earth who make up the corporate church of God. And it's our mission to take this message to the world so people can reject this dictator view of God, this penal substitutionary infection that's infected Christianity, and come back to a knowledge of God that he is the builder, the creator, the designer. We're going to worship him, first angel's message, who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. Come back to creator worship. Stop worshiping this dictator who makes a bunch of rules that must be appeased by the blood of his son so he won't kill you. 
And if you don't take it, then he's going to torture you and kill you. This is the lie. So there's a cleansing. But it's not a cleansing of record books from misdeeds. It's a cleansing of characters and minds from distortions about God, his methods, and his nature. What do you all think? That was a long-winded answer. I'm sorry. The actual sanctuary. Okay, what is the actual sanctuary? See, this is, this is what you said reveals a, a bias that I think is an error. The actual sanctuary, you sound to me, now correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds, it sounds like you're saying it's a building made out of inanimate materials. Well, that's not the actual sanctuary. That is a symbol system. That's a theater. That's, a, that's not the actual sanctuary. I mean, this is a pattern, a model that, built to represent the real sanctuary. But that's not the actual sanctuary, the Old Testament system. The actual sanctuary is constructed out of what? You and I are living stones built together into the house of the Lord, is what the scripture says. We are individual building blocks which together corporately make the temple. Know you not that you are a temple of the living God and the Spirit of God lives in you? And it's been defiled and corrupted by both lies about God and selfishness in our hearts. And he's wanting to cleanse this temple. And he's wanting to prepare people that are healed and restored and settled into the truth about him, both intellectually and spiritually. They cannot be moved so that when he comes, we will see him face to face because we'll be like him. That's cleansing the temple. Yes. I think what she might be saying, and I have somewhat the same question, is what is it symbolizing when they go in and clean the blood out of the sanctuary when the blood is Christ's blood representing? They didn't clean the blood out of the sanctuary. Okay, well, that's what I don't know. No, no. On the Day of Atonement, they took more blood into the sanctuary. They didn't take blood out. They took more blood in. They took the blood of the goat in, and the blood of the goat went and sprinkled seven, sprinkled on the on the um, on the mercy seat, and sprinkled seven times before the mercy seat, and was placed on the four horns of the altar, and was placed on the four horns of the brazen altar on the way out, and then the hands of the high priest were placed on the head of the, uh, of the scapegoat, and the scapegoat was let out. That blood wasn't taken out. More blood from the new from the new animal was taken in. So they never cleaned the oh. curtains or the, or the... The curtains were removed once a year on the Day of Atonement and replaced with new ones. But all the, all the things never were cleaned? The altars? And all there, is no, there is no ceremony established for the cleaning of those things. Now, there is a ceremony. There is a text in Leviticus 16.7, I think. Leviticus 16.27. Oh, Le- Leviticus 16.27 and 28 um, that talks about the cleaning of garments that get the whole the blood on them and somebody emailed me and asked a question about well if they're cleaning the garments and doesn't that mean it's contaminated if they're expected to clean it and this is what's key in a holy place think about it do you clean unholy things in holy places no you don't this is not unholy this did not defile the blood did not defile. what it, what i hear it saying is basically this the priests in their what kind of robes Scarlet robes, white robes. What are they doing? What are the priests doing? Are they ministering a lot of animal blood? Are there, are there going to be people cutting throats? Will there be arterial shooters going off? Will these priests have the vulnerability of getting blood splattered on their clothing? Okay? Do you think God wants the white priests walking around looking like butchers? You ever seen a butcher in a, in a store? Look in the store sometimes. There's a butcher. You see their, 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 their apron is just full of blood. Do you think God wants the priests in the, in the sample looking this way? No. no. Is it possible they did get blood splattered on them? Of 
Of course they did. So there's a provision. If you get blood splattered on your clothing, wash it in a holy place. Doesn't mean they're contaminated. He wants the robes to be clean. They're not contaminated. They're not unholy. But yeah, the, there is a provision for cleaning the robes. There is no other provision that I know of other than removing the, uh, the one inner veil once a year of removing the blood. I, I haven't found a provision. It might have been more for sanitary purposes than ceremonial. Yeah. He said it also could have been sanitary purposes too because the blood would... But they were, they were combined. They were combined. It was also uh, the way to switch back to his regular garments. He would go into a holy place and take off his... Uh, the garments he'd used and gotten bloody and switched back into his regular garments there. Yeah, but it doesn't in any way really indicate. Some people use it and say, well, they had to wash. It must have been contaminated. No, it wasn't. It was still holy. It was still holy. It wasn't defiled or unholy. Okay, Let, the, the text, the, the lesson actually does point out that the New Testament writers, yes, in the back. Could you reconcile this quote for us? The altar and the promise stand side by side, and one casts clear beams of light upon the other, showing that the justice of an offended God could be appeased only by the death of his beloved son. Where is the quote found? ST, December 23, 1886. Signs of the Times, December 23, 1886. Um, and read it again. The altar and the promise stand side by side. What altar? Stone of, altar of stone, altar of the bronze, the, the, the golden. What altar? I have to have the context to ultimately answer that. Read a little wider in the quote. Have them email it to request at comingreason.com and I'll look at that. So the, the lesson authors actually um, rightly say that the New Testament writers interpreted Isaiah and applied Isaiah 53. Let's notice how New Testament writers applied Isaiah 53. First, Isaiah 53.4. This is what it says, Isaiah 53.4. Surely our griefs... Uh, he bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we esteemed him stricken by God and smitten. Here's Matthew eight sixteen and 17. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with the word, and he healed all who were sick, in order that what was spoken through, the, through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, he himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. So how does the New Testament apply that? Well, he made legal payment. No, he literally carried our diseases upon himself and took them away and healed and restored and rejuvenated. He put us back in harmony with the laws of life. Bearing our griefs and carrying our sorrows does not mean that Christ paid a penalty for our sins, but instead means that he took away from us our griefs and sorrows, our sickness. He healed our infirmities. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, or by our transgressions. He was crushed by our iniquities. The chastisement uh, uh, for our, our well of our being fell upon him, and by his scourging or by his stripes we are healed. First Peter two twenty four and twenty five, and he himself bore our sin in his body on the cross, that by that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds we are healed. For you are continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. By his scourging we are healed does not represent legal transaction in heaven where God's attitude towards us is healed, but instead represents a change in our hearts where we die to sin and live to righteousness, returning to God instead of straying from him. Do you see the complete difference? Which model do you look for? Do you look through the lens of imperial dictator-type law that has no inherent consequence, or do you look through the lens of God the designer, the builder, whose law is what life is constructed to operate upon? That's the big key. That's the big difference. So I guess I, I need to start using the word designer law instead of natural law. 
because I've had several people email me say, well, you know, the evolutionists use the word natural law, and, and people are going to think you're just going to natural laws and, as if nature runs all by itself without a designer. So I guess I'm going to have to use designer law now instead of, instead of uh, natural law. Yes? All right. This, my brain is hurting. Uh, how? <laughs> okay. How could Jesus take the condition of sin for everyone on himself and from what I understand you saying, he destroyed it through love. Let's answer that question. How did Adam come into existence? Start with Adam. We're going to go through several examples. He was formed out of dirt, and God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and he became a living being. How did Eve come into existence? How? How? The same way. Was she built out of dirt? No. no. Okay, she was taken from a rib of Adam, and she was then brought into life. Both were perfect and sinless at their origination of life. Yes? Yes. How did you and I come into the world? Did we come in that way? From a sinful father and mother. From a sinful father and mother, born in sin, conceived in iniquity. Now look at Jesus Christ. How did Jesus' humanity come into this world? Did he, his humanity come out of dirt? No. Breathing nostril, breathe into a breath of life. Did he come from the side of a sinless being? No. Did he come from a sinful mother and father? No. no. Do you notice that Jesus is unique? He's not exactly like Adam or Eve, and he's not exactly like us either. He's unique. He came, it says in Galatians 4.4, born of a woman under law. He came from a sinful woman. But the father was who? The Holy Spirit came upon the woman. And so we have in Jesus his merging, his sinless life, but taking up humanity, broken off in the condition he inherited from Eve. And it says in Romans, through his human nature, he was a descendant of Adam genetically. So he took our condition. Now, get your mind around this idea. The, the, the Godhead, divinity, can create new, a new species anytime it wants. Anywhere in the universe, divinity can do that. He could have created a new human being out of dirt like Adam. But if he would have created a new being out of dirt like he did Adam and breathed in the nostrils of breath of life and created a new sinless being, would that being be a descendant of Adam? No. So it would not be part of this creation. It would be a new creation, a new species altogether. In order to save this species, Jesus had to partake of this species. And he became one of us. That's what Fifield was saying. And he became one of us, and through the exercise of his human brain, he chose every moment of every day to live perfectly in harmony with God's design. He was tempted in every way, just like we are, Scripture says, but without sin. It says in James that we're tempted when we're drug away and enticed by our own evil desires. So Christ, having taken our condition, broken off in Adam, experienced internal, not just external temptation. In Gethsemane, you see it. In Gethsemane, what did Christ experience? Did he experience powerful human emotions that tempted him to give himself in love or tempted him to save himself? And the root to sin is selfishness. He was tempted with our condition. Our condition pulled upon him. You want to see the intensity of the pull? Imagine you're, somebody's holding your head underwater. They're drowning you. You feel the seconds go by. You're getting dead. You have a knife in your hand. What are you likely to do with that knife? Will there be an intense desire to use that knife to stab the person holding you? He had that desire, but he had more than a knife. He had all power. That was the temptation inherent that he took, but he overcame it. He says, no one can take my life, I will give it freely. I will give it, I will lay it down. I'll surrender. 
And so how, how can you overcome that kind of temptation? What's the only power that can overcome that kind of temptation? So you're getting drowned and you have a knife in your hand and the person drowning you is your firstborn son. Love is the only power. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And for the joy set before him in Christ's love for us, he let us kill him because he didn't want to kill us. Is it powerful? It's huge. Huge. This was not legal payment, folks. He literally fixed what was broken in humanity. And thus, when he died on the cross, he rose again in a humanity that was purged from the infection. And that's why it says in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, once he was made perfect, he became the source of salvation for all who will trust him or obey him. I think that's a good place to stop. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you've done in Jesus Christ. We could never do it for ourselves. But you have done it for us. And now, Lord Jesus, we ask for your spirit, which you promised to send, to take all that is yours and make it known to us, to take all that you've achieved and reproduce it in us so it's no longer I that live, but you that live in me. We ask that you will write your law of love upon our hearts and minds and that we can die to that old fear-based self-centeredness and live a life of love to glorify you. We pray now, Lord, that you will enable us, this class, those here today, those who are out traveling this weekend, that you will enable us to be effective witnesses to take this message about you to the world. We ask a special blessing for next weekend on November 9 as we do a a seminar that you will bring people out whose hearts and minds will be moved, the Spirit will be there, that you will give me words to speak that will, will make this message clear and present you in the most lovely way possible. That our church... The Christian church can wake up from its slumber, throw off this this dark pall of misunderstanding, and be prepared to meet you, we pray in your holy name. Amen.